0: Um, You notice on one side, I'll always try to do this kind of thing where there's a bit of a review on one side of the uh, handout so that you can kind of know where we left off. And then from there, be able to take it up on our text. So the beginning beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gospel means good news. That's important to note. Mark is telling us it's the beginning of good news, not just a report, not just history, but good news. It starts with a messenger, John the Baptist, who was prophesied clearly in at least two books of the Old Testament. Mark tells us about those two books. The book of Malachi, Malachi, which is written, by the way, 400 plus years beforehand, said that the Messiah would come. He wouldn't come until the messenger came before him. And then the book of Isaiah, which was written over 700 years beforehand, said the messenger would show up and speak in the middle of the wilderness. And the wilderness is going to be our key in a lot of what we're looking at today. Um, It doesn't make any sense. Uh, For a guy that's going to go and herald the person who's going to change the entire world to start in a place so obscure, a place that is so dangerous, and a place that is, in essence, no man's land for anybody that has any decent sense of reason. I've learned not everybody has this, uh, but there is this point in our heads where, you know, that thing that says, you know, any step farther than this really is a bad idea. Well, Apparently, some people really, that voice isn't very loud and needs to be turned up. But the idea of it is, is anytime you were to go, let's go out into the wilderness, it would not be the place. It'd be the place where everyone's voice goes, that's really not the place you want to go. Uh, for a lot of reasons, and we'll talk about it from a biblical perspective, but it was the place where all the robbers hung out. It was the place where the banshees were. Uh, it was the place where, you know, you were, you were helpless because you were kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So if somebody really kind of jumped you and took your stuff, you really had no recourse. Uh, John came and baptized the people with a baptism of repentance and we wanted to make clear baptism means literally change your mind that's really important we we look at uh, repentance from an awful lot of perspective but the word in its simple sense means change your mind now no doubt if you genuinely change your mind it will change your actions but you can change your actions and not change your mind you just do it because you have to and if you know every one of us have had parents you know those moments where you really don't want to do anything but you do it out of protest because you really you love your behind. Uh, John told the people you baptized with water, but there was one coming after him who would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. The word baptize or baptizo literally means to immerse or saturate. And that is really fundamental. The idea of being saturated in God's presence. How amazing would that be? So Jesus shows up and is baptized by John. And as he, as he is being baptized, the heavens open up. The Father testifies from heaven endorsing Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes in like a dove upon Jesus. The first time a dove is mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis eight eight uh, when one is sent to testify of a new cleansed life to explore that had been the world had been covered in a flood, and now the dove was the harbinger, He was the messenger to say, "Hey, there is a new world now to go out there and explore." so let's go to the Lord in prayer we're going to jump in at mark 1.11. God, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. Speak profoundly in it, please. And let us truly be ministered to the way you desire for us to be ministered to. Jesus, in your name, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And may we have so much fun. May we be so glad we came, regardless of from what distances we came. May we be so thankful we came. And let us be filled and encouraged and blessed, Lord, that every one of us would be so thankful for this evening and all that you do in us now. We give you permission, Lord, to do everything you want to do in this time. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Mark 1, part 2, the tempted Savior. Then a voice came from heaven, that was verse 11, and said, You're my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then we read in verse 12. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministering to him. Ministered to him. We pick this up with a a verse so chock full of stuff, to be honest, that it almost bears... Taking an entire night just on that alone, uh, because there's so many things that we read and we kind of get. Now it is important to note from here that we have two other accounts of this temptation that are actually very, very much brought out they 're very developed. Uh, Matthews and Luke's accounts of jesus temptation tell us what the temptations were. Uh, Luke does focus on the fact that Jesus wasn 't just like forty days of prep and then one showdown. Uh, to be honest, Luke really focuses on the fact that for forty days, the, en- the enemy was relentless. And that's a horrible idea. And there's this whole season uh, where Matthew really focuses on that last showdown, if you will, finally at that point where this thing kind of co- concludes. But Mark doesn't even give us any of that. All Mark does is he states it sort of as a fact. Now, think about how re- how strange this whole thing is. Every part of this just you could think that God did not consult any intelligent PR individual to give him some form of information. First of all, are you really going to be choose to be uh, raised in a neighborhood where there's very few people, in the middle of kind of nowhere, in a town that most people barely knew about at all? So that if you were to say you were from there, it was an insult alone. When they say Nazarot, to this day in Israel, uh, a person who speaks Hebrew, if you're a Christian, they'll call you a Nazarot, which is the word for Nazarene, from Nazareth which, by the way, was a place so small to be from there, really wasn't saying anything or no, anything positive. Now, the smaller the town was, the less you would expect to be refined, the less you would expect to be socially gifted or apt, and the less you would expect to be educated. It would be very surprising. And by the way, that's certainly the case with Jesus. He stands up and he reads in the synagogue, and they're like, how does this guy, how is he even able to read? How does he know letters is the way we read? In other words, how does the guy even How was he able to read in the first place? He's just from a little hobung town in the middle of nowhere. Would you have picked that? Would you have picked a guy and said, all right, I want you to just take a guy that seems to be completely full on. He looks like he smells like his diet is the wilderness. Have him stand in the middle of some place where, I mean, it's the dark alley of its day. And just start screaming and telling people to stop doing, to change their mind. I was going to have to do this whole thing in rap. (laughs) Uh, I mean, imagine, and go. I want you to stand and start shouting in the middle of him and telling people everything they don't want to hear and say that the Lord is coming. And because the Lord is coming, you're going to really need to start changing your mind right now. And you need to make it easy for this guy to get into your heart. Would you pick there? Would you pick him? And then after that, have Jesus be baptized. Okay, maybe that moment. I wouldn't have picked that spot, but have Jesus be baptized. Have the heavens open. The Father say, this is my beloved son. Okay, that's a cool moment. But then after that, Jesus, I mean, this is the big coming out. Ta-da, here he is. And then, boom, he's gone for 40 days. Would you pick that? And you realize nothing about this makes sense on the drawing board, on the table. And that part I really like. I like the fact that God just doesn't need all of our help, giving him decent PR so that people could understand how cool he is. Because God has this tendency to work way outside of an intelligent logic to do things, so that when it does happen, people go, "Well, that must be God." But he's, but God is always dealing on a deeper level than we're willing to give him attention for. So listen, he goes, okay, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We read immediately. A word, by the way, I remind you, that is going to be the key word in most of the Gospel of Mark. Use more there than in the rest of the Gospels combined. And it says the Spirit drove him. Here's an easy word to remember, and I'm not going to give you a lot of Greek, but here's one. The word ekbalo. Try that word, ekbalo. It's obviously a conjugation of two words. Ek, it's a prefix like exterior, ectomorph. Ek means out. That makes sense. Balo, like ball, means to throw. So ekbalo in its simple sense means thrown out. And it tells us that Jesus being baptized, the next thing that happens, the Holy Spirit throws Jesus out into the wilderness. Have a nice day. Who wants to volunteer for this job? Now, we'll just start with this wilderness thing. The first time we are drawn to this concept, by the way, was somebody else that was driven out. And that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, I want you to consider the fact that when God made man, he made man in a place and then made a garden and then put him in that garden that he called Eden. By the way, the word Eden, or cheden, as it said in the Hebrew, is where we get the word hedonistic from. It means pleasure. It was the garden of pleasure. It wasn't the garden of work. It wasn't the garden of religion. It wasn't the garden of politics or the garden of tradition. What tradition could you have? You've just been made. What it was was a place of pleasure, a place where God was with man and man was with God. And it was a garden and it was beautiful and God kept making things that man could eat. Hey, guys, did you get me on that? It wasn't like God just went, I'm going to make some things. I want you to look at it and go, cool. I mean, God knows boys like to touch things and shove them in their mouth. You don't have to teach a guy to shove something in his mouth. And God, by the way, I I just have to tell you that happened all the way back in the garden. God made us that way. So he's like, here, try this. And so this was our relationship in a garden, a place of intimacy with God and everything. But one thing was to be explored and enjoyed and protected. That was it. But then God drove him out of that into the wilderness. And it went from the garden of intimacy with God to a wilderness of work. The next time I see this sort of really highlight, of course, is with the Israelites, where according to Numbers 32, 13, they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years while an old thing dies and a new generation is brought into a place of fruitfulness. It is also the place, by the way, we read in 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 23, I think 14, where David is fleeing from Saul. David's supposed to be the king. Saul is not willing to take his P45 and just shut up and go home. So with that, David ultimately has to run for his life until the guy dies. In all three cases, if you think about it, the old world dies and a whole new life is to be adventured. The same way, by the way, that we saw that with the dove. Now, the first one wasn't so good. When Adam and Eve had to, be, had to leave and were driven out of the wilderness, or driven out to the wilderness, it was a bad thing because the old life was the good one. But from that point on, leaving that old life was a good thing as long as it was beyond that point. You went to a place of fruitfulness and peace, a place of plenty. That was the whole idea of Israel. And you went to a place where the king took his rightful throne, according to David. Well, according to God. Interesting. It's a place of transition to new life, and that's what we see even here. Now, interesting, if you think about it, all the way back in Genesis, if we could have our way, we would want to go back to the garden. That's the whole point. We went from the garden to the wilderness in failure because of temptation. What does Jesus do? He starts in the wilderness, takes temptation there, overcomes it, and Jesus will go from the wilderness to the garden. It'll be there. That'll be his other place of temptation if you think about it. We went from the, from the garden to the wilderness. Why did John the Baptist scream in the wilderness? Because that's where man is. That's the whole point of it. Every man since the fall has been in the wilderness. Now, you know what the wilderness is like. The wilderness is a place of, of, of emptiness and barrenness. It's a place, it isn't a place without effort. It's just a place of struggle. It's a place of exhaustion. I mean, think about the times in your life you would say, these are the wilderness years. It wasn't like you didn't try. These were times of great effort. These were times where you were exhausted and you worked so hard and you got nothing for it. And in the end of it all, man, you just you lay your head on your pillow or whatever at night and you're just like, man, is tomorrow going to be another day of this? Another day of struggle like this? Another day of emptiness? Another day of fruitlessness like that? You remember those days? Prayerfully you're not in one now. But you know those days? They're harsh They're lame, they're hopeless, they're barren, they're empty, and Adam was thrown there. And so John the Baptist meets us there. He goes, I know what it's like. I know your emptiness, I know your barrenness. Jesus is going to take us from there, back home. Now, if we consider that, we get the idea why Jesus was driven to the wilderness, the fact that it was 40 days shouldn't surprise us because 40 days is a, day, is a time of testing or development. Also a time to, to transition to a new life. We know that from the flood in Genesis 7 to the time, by the way, when Isaac marries in Genesis 25. will ultimately have a son named Isaac who will be changed to Israel. I'm sorry, Jacob will be changed to Israel. Moses' whole life is in three 40-year periods. 40 in the palace, 40 wandering in his wilderness, and then 40 freeing Israel. Of course, the nation Israel will wander for 40 years. Moses will go up when he receives the Ten Commandments and he'll spend 40 days in the on the mountain. But even birth is 40 weeks. It is a time of transition and it makes sense that Jesus would spend that much time there. The Holy Spirit, by the way, didn't invite Jesus. The Holy Spirit didn't go, Hey, pst, how about this? He picked him up and threw him in whatever way he did. And Jesus was cast into the wilderness. We went voluntarily Jesus went because he had a debt to pay, but it tells us that he was tempted there. Now, I'd like you to consider the fact of how this compares to any other religious leader. We've got guys like you know we should probably not mention any names, but people out there that have obviously seceded to their temptations, and whether that be everything from marrying nine-year-old children to being with dead people to just slaying anyone who disagrees with you to surrendering to whatever temptation, lust, or challenge in front of them. And in the end of it all, that's a person who knows what it's like to lose. They know what it's like to take a temptation you're going to be dealt with, and they know how to lose with it, just like you. But is that what you want? I mean, the same way to say it this way. Let's say we were joining a sports team. I look around the room and I'm thinking, what sport could we all pick here? Wouldn't that just be fun? So me, just give me a sport. a sport that would be... I know
1: you're, d- domestic, what? Gymnastics,
0: Gymnastics, yes. Okay, we're a gymnastics team. That was a really great choice, yeah. So we become a gymnastics team. Well, we're going to want a coach. Now, we have, there's probably a lot of guys out there or gals out there that could probably help us or would volunteer to be that coach well, for a fee. Now, in the end of it all, we could say, well, there's one, let's say somewhere down the line, we started trying to do gymnastics, but Suzanne tried to do a cartwheel and broke her elbow. Probably a bad moment. Not like we know. Our daughter actually did that once. And then still tried to do cartwheels after that. And a girl. Anyways. Yeah, you can guess which daughter that was. Dan, somewhere down the line, tried to do the sort of vaulting thing with, you know, with the, um, the pummel horse. And while he tried to do the vaulting thing, and he grabbed the handles, and in all of that, he dislocated his shoulder. It was a rough time for him. So yeah, But he, he looks at the thing. He's got a little bit of trepidation. Sooty a little bit lighter on his feet. Tries the bo- the uh, the rings, the steel rings, and in that he goes down into the iron cross. But once he gets to that iron cross, at that moment he just gives up. And when he goes back this way, he breaks both of his knuckles from smacking them together. It was a rough moment for him. Okay, yeah, that was that was. A, I'm sorry to bring that back up, bro. it was really <laughs> rough, wasn't it? You know, Tunde on the other hand, he was the floor guy but he decided to do something more interesting than just doing the floor thing. He decided to do the one that was rhythmic because he felt like he had the rhythm in him. He's Nigerian. It's going to be rhythmic. And with that, he does the banner with the stick and the whole bit. You ever see that? And he jumps and he does this one moment where he jumps and does the splits in the air while he's twirling his big sort of baton with the thing. And the, and the whole flag just gets caught in both of his legs, rips them in half at that point, tears everything in a place I can't even mention. And then he falls to the ground. It's a rough memory for him as well. By the time we're all done with this, and Winston, oh, if you could have heard the problems that Winston had, oh, yeah, he was. it was awesome. He actually decided for whatever reason he was going to do the uneven in bars, but it, actually they weren't uneven when he started. And just somewhere down the line, one of them slipped, and it just. in the end of it all, he just wound up with a slipped disc. It was a really bad experience. Now, the whole point is this. Somewhere down the line, now, we're going to go to somebody, and there's a couple people that are there that are going to offer their services as our coach. Now, one of the particular persons, by the way, has actually at one time or another broken their Broken their ankle, torn themselves in the midsection horribly so, and in essence, in all of the cases, have all of the molasses, but they've never overcome it. They've just fallen in all of those things like we have. Now, in the end of it all, that may sound like a real comfort, but it isn't going to take us any farther than we already are. And we can sit down in the end of it all and have cookies and break out a little bit of Ben and Jerry's and cry over like a movie or something. But in the end of it all, I have a feeling we we sat down long enough. We could kind of have this meeting between us and go, I'm not really sure this, we're going to get any better with this person. Then there's another person who may have actually had a few of those experiences, but they've overcome them and now they've won medals. And as they've won medals, what's clear is they know how to overcome and they know how to win. And they know what it's like to deal with the challenges, but they know how to overcome them. Which person would you choose? And the reason I say that is I don't want to just come to somebody that knows what it's like to be tempted. I want to come to someone who knows what it's like to be tempted and knows how to say no to those temptations to overcome. Because that's a radical thought. Because to be honest, it's one thing for someone to sympathize because I've been a doofus. It's another thing for a person to be able to say, but we can overcome this. I don't hear enough of that. I mean, I was saying last night, there was something that amazes me about the fact we had, you know, we had that big run here in July and now they're having another one in Hyde Park uh, next month, I believe it is. And it's like, and they say, because I'm writing the Clipper, I get the whole advertisement. And on the advertisement, it tells you for your money to sort to, uh, to of join the race, you get a number, which is great. And you get a shirt. That's awesome. And you get a medal. You don't even have to show up at that point. As long as you paid your fee, you get a medal. And there's something about that that I think, what about the guy that actually wins? How does he feel like he's done any better than anyone else? And there's something where this idea where, well, hey, as long as we kind of get to be part of it, we win. Well, then well then, what's real? Well, then how does one person win better than another winner in this? And the reason I say that is I look at Jesus and I realize he's not playing that game with us. First of all, to be a perfect sacrifice, and God set that into motion all the way back in Exodus. It was never about the perfection of the sacrificer. It was always about the perfection of the sacrifice. Unique, by the way, to God's design through Judaism into Christianity, which, by the way, was one religion as far as God was concerned. Everybody else, it's about the sacrificer being better. And let's be honest. He had to clean up his act. He had to do his thing. And as long as he could stop doing other things and start doing other things that were right, and he could make penance, and he can do whatever, he could pray himself out of purgatory and give enough money on this and crawl on his knees. And as long as he did enough things, maybe somewhere in it the sacrificer was good enough. But how do you even know if you're good enough? But God said, emotion that was something much better than that. He was like, look, you can't pick yourself perfect once you've failed. But you can pick your sacrifice. And so under those auspices, if you think about it, God says you've got two choices. A perfect sacrifice, which you could be totally confident is right, and you'll be accepted, or one that isn't perfect, and you just hope it's good enough. The problem is the standard's perfection. So what do we throw out there? Our works, our efforts, our religion, our practices, one where they are perfect. The problem with perfection is how many things do you have to mess up for it not to be perfect anymore? Or you could pick Jesus who the Bible tells us was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And this is just the beginning of it. Two particular verses I want you to cling to if you know this, on those days when you're struggling. The first one is in Hebrews 4.15. It says, we don't have a high priest who who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tempted in every way, even as we are, and yet without sin. So when you're like, man, this burns inside of me. This, I want to do this so bad. Do you realize what it says to say that he was tempted in all ways? That means there's no temptation that you're experiencing in one way or another that Jesus wasn't tempted with. It's just like, you're like, man, I want to do this so bad. And Jesus is like, I know how that feels. I totally know how that feels. I also know how to win. But you know that. In Hebrews 2.18, and that's our second text that tells us. That because he in, in him, he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So you can get sympathy and help. Boy, I like that. You get both. He's the only one who ever knows what it's like to have always said no to every temptation. No one else has ever done that. He can truly sympathize, therefore, with every temptation and struggle. But he's the only one who can tell me how to overcome them by experience. Now, if you think about it, the Bible says that sin is fun for a season. Jesus paid the price and never got the goods. He paid the price as a sinner for all of our sin, and yet never actually sinned. That's a crazy thing. That's like us handing him all of our bills, but he never got any of the things that we bought with it that got the bills in the first place. Last thing on this, and we'll we'll move on. The last thing is it says that he was... Not only did he spend 40 days, not only was it in the wilderness, not only was he tempted, but it tells us by whom? By Satan, and it says he was also with the wild beasts. And I want to warn you, this, the word Satan, by the way, uh, in his simple means opponent. The other word that's used, Diablas, devil, means accuser. Those are two very important words. An opponent is somebody that wants to stop you from winning. That's pretty simple. And an accuser is somebody who's going to try to blame you for something. Or blame someone for something. In the case of Jesus' temptation, by the way, the Satan didn't actually blame Jesus; he blamed the Father. It's like, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones to bread? I could tell this really stuck in Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that this is something that he must have heard for 40 days? And you're hungry, man. Right? You're hungry. Come on, you have the power. Take the power back. You've submitted it all to the Father, and you only take whatever the Father gives you. But take it back long enough to... Make, come on, he, does he think he wants you to starve to death? Have you asked him for bread and he have not gotten it? You've asked the Father for bread and he hasn't given it to you? Well, then make it yourself. Come on, man. It's right here. Here's a rock. Make it bread. On, sourdough right in front of you. Easy. Because Jesus would say later when he talks about prayer, if you ask your Father for bread, will he give you a stone? You ever thought about the fact he actually has to pull from that? And he goes, if your father on earth, he's evil like the rest of human beings, knows how to give you good things, how much more your heavenly father if you just ask him? What a weird thing to say after going through 40 days of that. So he was with Satan and with the wild beasts, but it also said he was with the angels, or with angels who came to minister. I want to say this. Whatever that season is for you when you find yourself in the wilderness. You know, everything seems secure, now it doesn't. Everything seems so at peace and at ease, and now what in the world is this? Now it's futile, and it's struggling, and it's hard, and it's bitter. The accuser's going to be there because, well, let's face it, it's a prime moment for him to strike, isn't it? Have you learned this yet? If you give the enemy one minute of it, of your time He'll give you the whole show. And since his job is to accuse, you buy the first minute, man. The next thing you know, you've bought the whole plot. But God also owes messengers at that moment, even in the wilderness, to take care of you, to help serve you. You just got to be willing to listen. So we end this particular portion and move to the next one quickly with this simple simple thought that In order for the Lord to take us back to this place of intimacy with him, he was going to have to meet us in our wilderness. And in that wilderness, he was going to have to experience our temptations, but he was going to have to overcome every one of them. Remember, all he had to do was fail once, and it wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice. Talk about pressure. I mean, the only time I've ever experienced anything like that was on an infinitely smaller scale, and that was taking a driver's test. You know where they kind of look at you and say, you know, I just want you to know one fault and we're going to fail you. Yeah, well, anyways, I'm not bitter. I have my license now. Now, I want to do this even before we go on with this because it's intimate for the moment and it's sweet and who knows what it'll be like in weeks to come where it could be not that. I just want to pray for us right now. Chances are, I think the siren was on cue, was on fleek, uh, Chances are there's at least one area of our life right now that's probably wilderness. And I can see it in your faces. There's an area that it isn't like everything's just so easy. And you just feel like you dropped the penny in the slot and the whole machine started working. You're smacking it on the side, trying to pull the arm one more time, pushing a button, something, checking to make sure it's plugged in and the switch is on. And no matter what you're doing, it's it's just not cranking out like you thought it would right now well, I just want to pray for you. And I want to pray for me too. As a human being, I'm as susceptible as anyone. The temptations are going to come from the tempter, and they'll start with, by the way, I want to warn you, they'll start with accusations. Because when they start with accusations, then you get angry. And when you get angry, you feel entitled to make a stupid choice. And the enemy's smart enough to know that if he can get you angry first and spiteful, then getting you to t- be tempted is a very easy thing. If you're in a happy and a really good mood, and then he's like, go punch that person, chances are you would be like, that's nonsense. But if he can get you really angry before that, it's a little bit more of a problem. At least for other people, not me, of course. <clears throat> so well, let's let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll dig into at least the next couple of verses. God, I just want to pray for every person in this room that may have been trying to rely on themselves, being, them as the worshiper, as the sacrificer, being perfect or good enough versus the biblical mandate of actually having the right sacrifice. And we recognize, God, that there really is, even here right now, There are challenges. There are wilderness points in each of our lives that it just seems like the harder we row, we're still not getting anywhere. Or that we think we should have been farther by now. Or why am I still single? Or why am I not here at this point in life? Or why is this still not happening? Or whatever it is, Lord, that you use as preparation for an infinitely greater season. But let's face it a little bit in the wilderness, Lord, and any, almost any place seems like a better season. But God, I just want to pray right now that we would see that you have offered yourself the perfect sacrifice. You know what it's like to meet us in the wilderness. Thank you for meeting us there. You weren't intimidated by that. You weren't driven away by that. You were serious about that. And you met us there. And you called us to follow and we'll see that in time to come here. You didn't call us to be perfect. You called us to follow. You didn't call us to prove ourselves worthy. You called us to follow. And we rely on you. You're our only hope. So God, I just pray that you would even right now show us the gift of Jesus Christ. And in his gift his death on the cross, to pay for all of the guilt and the shame, to pay the debt, but to rise again to show us that it was a perfect sacrifice so we could rest in the fact that though we are not perfect as sacrificers, the sacrifice can be perfect. In Jesus' name, be our peace and our rest, even in those wilderness things. Amen. Last two verses for tonight. After that, John was put in prison. Way, Jesus had come from being baptized in the wilderness where there was a river to the wilderness where there wasn't to be to be driven, to be tempted, and Jesus comes out of all of that and he finds things a little bit different when he comes back. I'd like you to consider that. I mean, Jesus had been. In the wilderness, and in, in any time that you leave for any period of time and you come back, it seems so strange that you have this image in your head that everything's put on pause and when you come back, everything's going to be the same. You know this about London. That is radically never the case. Your favorite restaurant or some of the people that were your favorite people, they can go very quickly here and we recognize that. And you could be told or not told. We don't have any record that Jesus would be told ahead of time of any of this. But somewhere down the line, the running's on the wall. John's going to have to be killed. The ambulances will have to be called. And Jesus comes back, and John is put in prison. And Jesus, we read, comes to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled. It's now. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist is a forerunner in all of the major stages of Jesus's life. And that must be a pretty radical thought. Could you imagine having somebody that you kind of knew you're, you there'd be like several stages of your life and you have a cousin who's always going to get there a little bit quicker than you are. So, I mean, sometimes it could be a really good thing. Sometimes it'd be a really bad thing. So imagine if you will, it's like, Oh, the guy gets accepted into university. Well, I guess I'm going to, okay, this is the season where I get accepted into university. Oh, the guy graduates with honors. Then it's my turn to graduate with honors. That's awesome. Can't wait to follow in that. Oh, look at that. He's elected, you know, he's he's elected sort of the uh, the chairman of his organization or a representative. Oh my goodness, look at where he's at now. The prime minister. Well, I know I must be next because that's kind of the way it works. Well, with John the Baptist and Jesus, John is a forerunner. He does that in three primary stages. The first is he emerges in his baptism, and then Jesus emerges and is baptized then Paul's put I'm sorry Paul then John is put into prison and then Jesus begins his public ministry of healing in, in essence setting people free if you think about it then John will be executed and then Jesus knows it's time to be executed now at that point if you knew that you weren't going to die until your cousin died you really if you were anything like me I really wouldn't be excited about my cousin even being ill nonetheless something like that he's like I heard he was almost hit by a car what you know I'd be really attentive to that and and you can, we'll definitely get there when Jesus is uh, alerted that John the Baptist is murdered. Man, he takes it really hard. And it's important to remember, Jesus didn't think, let's start a new religion here. Wouldn't this be cool if we started a whole new thing? Because the whole Old Testament sums up with the idea that there was, a, there was a hole, there was a piece missing to make the whole puzzle worth it. And that piece is Jesus. That's the point is Jesus didn't say, let's start a new thing. He's like, we're going to fulfill the old. And that's what he tells us now. The time is fulfilled. That time you have been waiting for all the way back since the fall of man when God told Eve that, I'm telling you, you'll bruise the serpent's head, he'll bruise your heel. I want you to know this thing's going to wrap up. In the end of it all, there are two primary marks of that fall. For the man, it would be thorns. He goes, you're going to set your hands to the ground, but it's just going to produce thorns, man, but you're going to have to work through them. For the gal, he's like, look at it. I want you to know it's going to be a painful childbirth. Interesting, because those are the two things that talk about the coming of Jesus. The first time Jesus took the curse of the the earth, if you think about it, wore it like a crown on his head. The whole crown of thorns makes perfect sense to me. But it tells us that the second coming of the Lord is like a woman in childbirth. And the whole thing wraps up. I get it. But when Jesus shows up, understand even to the day that He shows up, all of this stuff is being prophesied. So Jesus is like, "Look at, the clock has been ticking, and you kind of know three, two, one. Hi, here I am. Jesus is the time fulfilled. It's now." John said, "You need to get yourself ready because He's coming. Guess what? I'm here now." He goes, and "This is what you need to do. You need to repent, and you need to change your mind. You change your mind, and you need to believe." Now it's important to recognize this and we'll see this next week when we get actually into the text where he starts calling the great adventure of following the Lord, starting in verse 16. Can't wait to get there. But in this beginning part, understand Jesus says, if you're going to really begin this adventure with me, it's really going to take two things. You're going to have to change your mind and then you're going to have to lay out your trust. It's really the simplest of it. And that will be the case with every one of us in every important decision that's going to affect the rest of our lives. You change your mind. You make you make a decision in your mind, and then you make a decision in your trust. I made that decision over twenty-seven years ago. I changed my mind about singleness, and then when I made that decision, I chose to spend my trust. The word "believe" episkiúcho simply means to spend your trust, and I chose to spend my trust. Now I spent it on the Lord, and the dividend was that I got married to a very beautiful gal that I'm very thankful for. still married to her today, and praise God for that. And in that, my whole life was going to be changed for the rest of it. I expected that. I didn't go in it with a back door. I went in with three walls, well, four of them, and the end of it all, and I was happy with that. I am happy with that. But it started with me changing my mind. Jesus looks at these people and he's like, you know that time you've been waiting for? It's now. And you have two things you need to do. You need to change your mind about your self-reliance. And you have to spend your trust. And if you're willing to do that, verse 16 onward, makes perfect sense. Because the whole idea there is, it's time to follow the Lord. Now, as we go to prayer, I just want to ask a couple quick questions and we'll go to prayer. The first question is, what part of your life fights the idea of Jesus being Lord the most? What's the one aspect that you just realized, man, if I really went full on for this whole Jesus thing, this is the area that I know is going to it's going to cost the most. What's the challenge there? And then I ask, what are you trusting that seems so important that it's worth actually holding on to that in comparison? The second is, in regards to that, that when Jesus tells us here to believe in the gospel, he's telling us to believe in the good news. Not just believe in an ideal or a politic. Is it really good news to you? Is it good news that though you may not be able to ever make yourself perfect in and of your own efforts, you can choose a perfect sacrifice and God does something crazy in doing that. He actually takes the accounting bill and he washes you totally clean and in his eyes, you actually are perfect. That's the crazy part. But see, this is the funniest part to me is that anyone could call a Christian self-righteous, at least a genuine Christian, because we're the only people on the planet who aren't. I mean, let's think about it. If you have to work and you have to pray and you have to give and all of this is what makes you righteous. Well, you did it yourself. It's self-righteous. I'm not self-righteous. I'm Jesus-righteous. Jesus did all the work. All I had to do was change my mind and put my trust. And if I changed my mind and played out my trust, he did the hard part. How in the world could I think that I did anything other than respond? Now, is that a choice you want to make tonight? Is that worth a choice that you need to make? I I want to let you know. It isn't just about agreeing. It's about saying, all right, Jesus, I'm going to give you the right to lead me. And lead me on the greatest adventure. Well, that's the choice you got to make. I've made mine. And I have no regrets. Would you pray with me? I want to thank you, God. That you have not just simply told us, stop doing bad stuff you think is fun and learn how to make other more religious stuff fun instead and call that repentance. You've asked for me to genuinely reconsider what I'm, th- my whole line of thinking about being self-reliant and trying to do it myself and somehow banking on the idea that I'm just a decent enough guy when you've already paid my bill, and I can see how insulting that would be to you. If in all of that, I'm still somehow trying to make myself right before you, instead of by trust, recognizing how good you are, how kind you are, and how willing you are to do it at my permission. But you are a gentleman, you give me that choice, you give me the dignity of choice. And I recognize these are active verbs. These are verbs where I make a conscious choice and a conscious choice to change my mind and a conscious choice to lay out my trust. And I recognize that in everywhere else I'd be trying to just change my heart and yet what you've promised is if I'm willing to change my mind, you're willing to change my heart. And I recognize it isn't just about a person who is maybe has no Christian background but about us who may, maybe make that claim but somehow in all of that there's just areas of wilderness where we're really just not trusting like we could. And I pray for greater trust. You tell us that that faith comes by hearing and that your word even tonight you've laid more into our accounts to trust. And I pray It would be anyone that wants to just, you know, say, all right, I'm going to go for it. I just, somehow I feel this prompting, and I recognize, man, I really need to lay out your trust, my trust. I'm going to change my mind about this. Well, then just pray this prayer with me. God, I don't claim to be perfect before you, but you've not demanded for me to be perfect before you. You've given me a perfect sacrifice to choose in Jesus. And I recognize anything else that I choose will not be perfect. And your son came to Earth, was tempted in every way, even as I, even as I'm tempted. But I have failed, and he didn't. And because of that, he qualifies to take all of my sin if he were vo- willing to volunteer for that, and he did. And he paid all my price so that all my guilt could be properly punished without me being sent eternally away from you. So God, I just pray that you just help me to change my mind about relying on myself when you give me such an easy choice in front of me. And I recognize when Jesus died on that cross, he died on that cross for me. Just like scripture promised, being buried and just like scripture promised on the third day rose again and he offers me a brand new life and and I want to say yes to that I lay my trust I change my mind about my past and present and I lay my trust for the entire future and say now would you lead me? Lead me on this adventure of discovery and take me from my wilderness to a place of fruitfulness and intimacy with you a place what really is a place of pleasure, a place you designed me to be, where I walk with you. So if really what you're looking for is my permission, I give it to you. If what you're looking for is me to hand over my life in faith and trust, I say, yes, here, have it. Just make it something great, please. I'm yours now, in Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers. Now give us that passion and excitement about the idea of really living it out. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Rescue me, pull my soul from the grave and see me without blame. You turn my deadly heart to one that dance and sings So you The grave and see me without blame. You turn my dead in heart to one that and sings. So here I am.
0: in every case and Lord we just pray make us those overcomers now where we no longer have to spend our time feeling sucker to a life that just is that we hate but Lord let us live in that place Lord of victory with you tonight Jesus in your name